This morning begins our Lent study for the year, which I'm really excited about. I know I've explained several times um, that during Lent and Advent, we kind of sink into the lectionary. Um, that we, uh, for those two, what we call high holidays, we kind of get our passages from the lectionary. It gives us a chance to kind of lock ourselves in with a huge, massive amount of the body of Christ that are studying the same passages during those holidays. Um, I've talked about that a lot, but what I haven't talked about is how much that changes my week, um, which is really fun. Because when I do a topical series, what I'm generally doing is I'm, I'm, I have something I really want to say, something I've found in my study, something that is, I'm passionate about, and the challenge is trying to find a way to communicate that to you. So I, when I put my sermons together, I'm, I'm really saying what I want to say about something, and I'm, I'm looking for a way to, to get that across. When I do the lectionary passages, I'm kind of assigned a passage. I don't go into it with like a passion or a vision or something that's burning on my heart to talk about. I get to do what one of my favorite things to do, um, which is study. Uh, I'm a nerd. Uh, hello, I'm Chris. I'm a nerd. I love to study. I'm, like when I learn something new, um, it's like I'm like a kid on Christmas. It's really fun. And Esther, the, the number of times she's been like, oh, my God, you were such a nerd. I can't believe you're so excited about that. Anyway, since I say I have to say this has been a really fun week um, of study. I, I get a fresh batch of scriptures every high holiday, and I get to kind of go into them, get into some ancient contextual documents and current commentaries and Jewish perspectives, and it's really fun. Um, and so we're going to bring a little bit of all that into this study. And then I looked over the gospel passages for this Lent season. Um, I found this kind of repeating theme over and over again um, in each of the stories, and that's the theme of a roadblock. Uh, every single one of these stories in the literature, we call this the conflict in every single one of our stories here. And, uh, and each of these roadblocks do serve as the conflict in the story, but I also noticed that Jesus and the people around Jesus were running into these things and they were becoming almost a roadblock um, to, their, to their story, to their walk with Jesus, to their um, spiritual journey. And so, so I decided to kind of unpack each of those roadblocks. And each week we're going to deal with one of these roadblocks. And Lent is when we kind of face the darkness. It's, this is the wilderness part of our Christian year. This is the wilderness season. So please, please, please come prepared to be uncomfortable. I'll apologize now. And most of the roadblocks are not circumstances. That's what makes them uncomfortable. Is Circumstances are easy, comparatively speaking. And circumstances generally change on their own. Well, the roadblocks we're talking about are mindsets. These are things that are inside of us that are much, much more difficult to deal with. So, we're going to be talking about the way we think and how those can be roadblocks in our lives. And I think they get progressively tougher each week. So buckle up because it is Lent. Um, this morning's passage is super familiar. Most of us have heard this passage over and over and over again. But let's be thorough and read the full thing. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came to him. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scripture says people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to a holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scripture says he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scripture also says, you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, 
if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan. Jesus told him, for the scripture says you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away and angels came and took care of Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. So this is a story that we commemorate when we celebrate Lent. Um, And I personally believe that uh, just as we kind of set our Lent season of 40 days based on Jesus's fast in the wilderness, we should kind of set up our fast similar. Um, If you're not familiar with a Lent fast, there really are no rules. I grew up, our fast was we didn't eat meat on Fridays, and um, which meant we ate fish instead. And since I like fish, Lent was kind of a great time. I was guaranteed fish at least one day a week. But generally you give up something for 40 plus days. It's, if, you, if anybody's ever been nerd enough to do the math, it's actually like 46 days. And everybody's like, why do we do 46 days? When Jesus fasted 40 days, it's because the ancient church, Jesus said it's not appropriate to fast when the bridegroom is with you. And the ancient church believed that on church, when we come to church and gather, the bridegroom is with us in a way that's more tangible than other times. So it wouldn't be appropriate to fast on Sundays. So the ancient church didn't fast on Sunday. So if you do the math backwards from Easter and you take out the Sundays, 40 days takes you to Ash Wednesday. So some people fast on Sundays, some people don't fast on Sundays, but it's, uh, there's no real rules. It's kind of whatever you feel like you want to do. But I think we can learn a few things from Jesus' fast. First, we don't necessarily have to fast bad things. Jesus, um, we're so pragmatic today that sometimes when we fast, we're like, I really need to cut down on soda anyway, so I'm going to fast soda. You know, like we make it, we, we pick something we really shouldn't be doing anyway, and we fast that thing. But Jesus fasted food and water, and I can't imagine, that, you know, those, I can't imagine Jesus going, you know, I've been drinking too much water. I'm going to cut back on water for Lent, and I'm going to push it on Facebook so everybody knows. I can't really imagine that's how it played out, right? So Jesus picked these things that were good things. So when you're considering a fast, don't think about things that you should give up anyway. Think of outside the box. I had a friend who had done a morning devotional every single day from high school until he was like in his 40s. And so one late season he said, I'm going to, I don't really try any other spiritual disciplines because this one's always worked for me. So I'm going to try fasting. I'm not going to do my morning devotional for 40 days. I'm going to see what else I can come up with. And turns out it was a disaster, but it was a good fast. He, he learned a lot from it. Um, which brings us to our second thing that we can extrapolate from Jesus' wilderness time. And that's that Jesus said, it says he was led into the spirit to be tempted. To be tempted. This is not like some spiritual discipline and he just, oh, surprise, I was tempted while I was there. I'm trying to cut back on burgers and man, I really want one. Like this was not a surprise. This is why he was there. He went to the wilderness for this purpose, which is kind of why we do this um, during Lent. It's, it's kind of an intentional time to go, I need to flex by no muscles. There's times when things run into our lives that we have to say no to. And just like any other sport, if you haven't taken time to condition those muscles, they may not be there when you need them. And so Lent is the time we go, you know what? I need to be tempted. I need to go to be tempted. I need to flex my resistance muscles. And so we pick things that are hard. I always tell people if... If you don't fail at your Lent fast, um, or at least get really, really close, then you probably didn't pick anything hard enough. This isn't just like a spiritual discipline where you're like, I need to cut back and start with some No, this just needs to be something that you struggle with. Like, you're probably better off choosing something that you fail every single day than you are picking something that you didn't even really notice you were fasting. Like, this is to really work on your resistance muscles, your no muscles. And that's why Jesus was there. He went to the wilderness for the express purpose of being tempted. And he was, which kind of constitutes our first roadblock 
in this series, which is temptation, right? And none of us are shocked by this because temptation is universal. We all know that this is a roadblock to a healthy relationship with God. Not only that, we also know that temptation is universal. We all face it. It's one of the things that no matter how hard we try, it finds its way to each and every one of us. No matter how much we try and insulate ourselves from temptation, it gets to us. It's like this story I heard about the Trump administration when Obama's time was over and he was stepping down. His final duty was to meet with Trump in the Oval Office and give him the combination to the safe. He told him there's three envelopes in there labeled one, two, and three. If you're ever in trouble, open envelope one. He said goodbye and left. A couple weeks go by and everything's fine. Then finally Trump completely screws up to the point that it doesn't seem like there's a graceful recovery. And then he remembers the safe. And so he goes back and opens it up, hoping for some wisdom. And he rips it open, envelope one, and it says, it is not too late to blame your predecessor. <laughs> and so Trump goes to Congress and the people and he explains something awful has happened. It seems like Obama has left some cracks in the process. I stumbled right into one. They say, no problem, learn from it, document it, don't do it again. Months go by, Trump's doing great, starting some new things, things are happening. Messes up again. This time he doesn't even hesitate. Straight to the envelope. Can't wait to see what's in there. Opens it up. Still not too late to blame your predecessor. So he contacts press secretary, goes out, announces I hit a roadblock, looks like Obama really screwed things up. I'm going to fix them. Everybody lets him go. Some months go by, it happens again, third time. Screws up bad, doesn't know what to do. Goes back to the thing, opens envelope number three, and there's one piece of paper, and it says one thing. Prepare three envelopes for the safe and number them one, two, and three. <laughs> as reliable as leaders blaming their previous leaders, temptation as a way of making it to every single one of us. You simply can't escape it. I have a really good friend. We talk about our kids all the time and some of the challenges our kids faced and some of the temptations that they struggle with and some of the ways we worry about them. And we'll be talking about this certain kid and all the struggles they have. And it's totally natural. Then we'll talk about another kid who doesn't have any of those struggles. And we're like, then there's this kid. And then we shift to all the temptations that this kid has. Like, it's a totally different kid. They don't face any of the same stuff. But I'm really worried about them, too, because now they've got to worry about this, 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 this. It seems like it makes us, all of us, no matter who we are. You cannot escape it. Which brings us to kind of my first point that I really want to talk about. That's the temptation is not a product of modern society and technology. We kind of have this tendency to, to think about with everything we face. You know, if we would have been put in the garden, saying no to that fruit would have been simple. I, mean, I don't really like fruit. I would have had no problem at all. Like, if you could have put me there. Or we read some ancient text about purity and and we're like, yeah, easy for you to say. You don't have a TV throwing garbage in your face all day. And you have the internet in your pocket. And, right? But no matter how much we try to blame our weakness and shortcomings and how much temptation we face on the world today, the truth is Adam and Eve faced it. Everyone in the Bible faced it. Jesus faced it. Temptation is not essentially a product of our environment. It's not primarily an external pressure. And I believe a good look at the temptations that Jesus faces will bear that out. So let's look at them one by one. And I want to challenge you to do this differently today. A lot of us have heard these stories over and over again. So this morning we're going to pretend like we're Matthew's original intended audience. Okay, we're first century Jews listening to this account of Jesus from Matthew the tax collector. And I'm going to see if I can paint this the way a first century Jew might have seen it. 
It starts this way. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, the way the story starts out, it seems that the temptation is attached to Jesus's hunger. Right. I'm sure that Jesus's hunger didn't make this any easier to resist. But I don't really think that uh, that Satan is tempting Jesus with food here. I don't think that's the root of it. Remember, for first century Jews. Uh, we hear this passage differently. As soon as we heard the previous verse that Jesus went in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights, as Jews, our brain would go, this is, this is talking about another story. There's another 40. Jews, numbers are not arbitrary to a Jew. So they would say, ah, this is like when, when our nation wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. You'd make that connection between the 40s. You'd say, because to a Jew, that's when it started, really. Like they saw themselves as children of Abraham, for sure, and they clung to those promises. But the nation really started in the Exodus. When Moses went and they led the people free of Egypt, that's when the story of Israel really started. And so a Jew would hear 40, and they would go, oh, this is like the beginning. This is like the beginning of our nation. This is a wandering story. So this is like us in the wilderness. As Jews, we'd make that connection. And what Matthew writes next would confirm it. Because see, and you've got to hang with me here because I nerded out this week. I'm going to try to not make it too heavy, but this is, this is fun. So if we went to Exodus 14, you're going to read the story about Moses running into the Red Sea. It's big and dramatic. If you don't like to read, read the Prince of Egypt. It's a great rendition. But if they run in the Red Sea and God stops the Egyptian army from pursuing, Moses parts the water, leads Everybody into this new valley. They get out the other side. The Egyptians come in. The sea crashes in on them. It's a big dramatic scene in Exodus 14. Then Exodus 15, Moses is this huge poem, song that Moses writes about this victory. And exciting with a little tag at the end that kind of says, hey, where are we going to get water? We're in the wilderness. So this is kind of the beginning of the wilderness story. That's 14 and 15, right? Well, guess how 16 starts? You don't have to. We're going to read it. Then the whole community of Israel set out from Elim and journeyed into the wilderness of Sin, between Elim and Mount Sinai. They arrived there on the 15th day of the second month, one month after leaving the land of Egypt. There, too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and we ate all the bread we wanted. But now you have brought us into this wilderness to starve us all to death. Then the Lord said, look, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you. Each day, the people can go out and pick as much food as they need for that day. I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. So if we're first century Jews, the second we hear 40, our minds go back to this story. Our minds go back to the story we've heard a million times. And what's the first conflict we run into? Bread. Bread. Where are we going to get Bread. And, and so God comes and he provides manna. But then when we go back to Jesus, he's 40 days in the wilderness. So our minds are thinking 40. Our minds are in this place. And the very first temptation shows up and Satan goes, you're going to need bread. Like you're going to need bread. So what's he saying here? Jesus is this quintessential Jew. He's the perfect Jew. He's the ideal Jew. And Satan shows up and goes, are you different than any of the other Jews? When they were in your spot, they, they immediately turned on God and begged bread. How about you? Are you any better? It took them a month before they were crying for bread. You're here 40 days. Come on. Come on. Turn the stones to bread. Think about it. There has to be something more than food 
going on here. Eating is not a sin. What kind of temptation would... There's no rule that says Jesus can't eat bread. There's no rule that says he can't turn stones into bread. So what's the temptation? I think Jesus actually answers it. No, the scripture says, people do not live by bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And this is where it gets so fun. Jesus is actually quoting Deuteronomy. We've talked about Deuteronomy quite a bit lately. It's this kind of recap of the law. Deuteronomy is where, you know, we, we kind of go through the first four books and Deuteronomy kind of recaps it. And Moses actually read the book of Deuteronomy to the Israelites just before they were going into the promised land. So this is kind of a, this is what we've done for the last 40 years. This is, this is the full kind of breakdown. Fun little nerd fact, archaeologists have, <laughs> stop laughing at me, Judy. Um, the archaeologists have uncovered a lot of documents from that time period, and Deuteronomy is written in the form of a legal document of the time. We found other legal documents that follow almost the same form as Deuteronomy. It's a contract. It's actually a contractual thing. So not only is Moses issuing this contract between God and his people, he actually wrote it out like a contract. It's, it's kind of cool. Deuteronomy is actually a contractual document between God and his people saying, if you will do this, you will be my people, I will be your God. Anyway, that's for free. <laughs> Deuteronomy, um, as an Israelite, is this book about the end of their time in the wilderness. Right? And after this entire generation who had complained about the manna, after this entire generation has died, Moses is talking to the, to the generation that's getting ready to go into the promised land. And Moses says this, Be careful to obey all the commands that I give you today. Then you will live and multiply, and you will enter and occupy the land I swore to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone, rather by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Jesus answers this question about bread with a direct reference to the manna. He says, no, I've already learned that lesson. So Satan comes in with his bread and goes, come on, you're in the wilderness. Now, for first century Jews, we would have made these connections. You're in the wilderness. What about the manna? And Jesus answers with what it took the Israelites 40 years to learn, which was we have to live on more than just bread. So, so Jesus is, is drawing all this into one point in, in this story. The Jews were tested with hunger and failed. Jesus comes along and says, I don't really need bread. I've already learned this lesson. I need the word of God. So the first temptation isn't to eat and break a fast. It's this question of faithfulness. Are you truly a faithful Jew? Are you truly do you truly believe that you live on the word of God? Jesus resists the temptation. So Satan seems to shift gears. It says, then the devil took him up on a holy mountain, Jerusalem, the highest point of the temple, and said, if you're the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect you. They will hold you up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Satan seems, uh, sets up this temptation is based on Psalms 91. He actually quotes Scripture to Jesus from Psalms 91. Well, guess who wrote Psalms 91? Anyone? We have no idea, actually. But that doesn't really matter today. Um, because if we were first century Jews, we would think we knew. 
Because in the, what we call the Mishnah, which is this rabbinical commentary on the Psalms. So the rabbis from the Babylonian period, several hundred years before Jesus, wrote some commentary on the Psalms. And in the Mishnah, they said that Moses wrote Psalms 91. Um, and not the Mishnah, I'm sorry, the Midrash. So in the Midrash, uh, Midrash, Telahim, and Zohar teach that Moses composed the Psalms while ascending into the cloud, hovering over Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. I kid you not, that's in the Midrash. So we're back at that same point in history. He recited it as a protection against destruction. So we have no idea if any of that's true. That doesn't really apply to us. But we do know that Matthew... And the people that Matthew was writing to would have assumed Psalms 91 was a psalm of Moses. That Moses wrote at this point when they first entered the wilderness at Mount Sinai. So we're back in Jesus' day. And Satan comes to Jesus and says, you know, hey, maybe you should test this. Moses prayed this prayer for protection. What about you? In other words, when Satan moves on to temptation number two, he's still taking Jesus back to that one point in the wilderness. Just like he did with the bread. So picture Moses up in the mountain, completely covered in a thick cloud of God's presence, writing about how safe he feels there. He says stuff like this. He says, if you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the most high your shelter, no evil will conquer you. No plague will come near your home. For he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up in their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus has just stated that he knows he can trust God. He knows he can trust God's word more than anything else. And Satan fires back with challenge number two. So if you believe that so fully, if you trust the Lord so completely, then prove it. Prove it. That's, that's temptation number two. If you truly believe that, Prove it. And what Jesus does here is really cool. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, where Moses says, You must not test the Lord your God, as you did when you complained in Mesa. Which begs the question, what's this Mesa thing all about? Remember Exodus 14 is the Red Sea. 15 is the celebration of the Red Sea. 16, they turn on God and beg for bread. Well, guess what happens in 17? The Jews tested God. That's Mesa. 17 is Mesa. This time they ran out of water and, and they begged for water and they screamed. They turned on God again for water. It made a big enough impression that, that Moses, 40 years later, goes, do not test God like they did back there in Exodus 17. So now we've, we're in Exodus 16. We're in Exodus 17. We're in Exodus. We're in this Exodus story. We're finding out that this is an Exodus story. So right now, we're first century Jews, and we're listening to this temptation story of Jesus's. The number 40 already took us back there. Jesus' first temptations from Exodus 16. Satan quotes a psalm that was written in Exodus 19. Then he refers to a story from Exodus 17, which brings us to the third temptation. Next, the devil took him on a peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scripture says you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away and the angels came and took care of Jesus. Well, now 
that we basically located ourselves in this ancient story at Sinai, it's not hard to place this temptation. This comes from, straight from the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. So we've now hit 16, 17, 19, and 20. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, place of your slavery. You must not have any other God before me. Satan pulls out all the stops and tempts Jesus to break command number one. And Jesus obviously and absolutely refuses to do so. But here's the thing I really want to look at this morning. Because to be honest, you can preach this passage a million different ways. And they'd all be good and all be different. But when I came to this passage, I look at it through the eyes of a first century Jewish reader. We can't help but come to the conclusion that this is an Exodus story. Which is important for a couple reasons. Number one, it tells us that the Bible didn't just happen. It happens. That the Exodus story isn't a history story. It's a story of something that happens. And it happens to us. It happens... Like the Bible is this story about our lives. We pray every day that our kids would find themselves in the story of God. That the Bible didn't just happen, it happens. And that's what's important. Jesus finds himself living a story that had already happened because it's still happening. We're all still in an Exodus story being set free from our old lives and finding ourselves and a challenge of what it means to live a new life in this place. But we have to ask ourselves as we find Jesus in this Exodus story, as we, as we recognize that everything he's talking about, everything Matthew is telling us about Jesus is from this one story, we have to ask why. And to get at that, we have to move back just a touch. Remember the chapter and verse divisions in the Bible weren't in the original documents? We added those to make it easier to remember and reference, but none of that's in the original stuff. So if we were reading originally, chapter 3 and 4 would have bled right together like one story. We wouldn't have naturally known there was a division there. Our eyes wouldn't have seen it. And it would have read something like this. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son, who brings me great joy. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Forty days and forty nights he fasted and became hungry. During that time, the devil came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. I had to shrink that a little so we could fit. So you could see how close those two connect, that connection is. So the real question that Satan is asking And these temptations are, are you really the son of God? Are you really? The voice from heaven comes and says, you are my beloved son. And Satan immediately answers with, are you though? Are you really? And to a Jew, this is a very loaded question. This is, there's way too much for us to fully go into here. But this also takes us to the Exodus story. In Exodus 4, when, when, the, when the deliverance first started, it reads like this. And the Lord told Moses, when you arrive back in Egypt, go to Pharaoh and perform all the miracles I've empowered you to do. But I will harden his heart and he will refuse to let you go. Then you will tell him, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. So this is a huge statement to a Jew for, for, the, for the heavens to part and God to speak. This is my beloved son. 
The Exodus story is the first time this phrase is ever used in the Bible. It's actually used throughout the Old Testament to refer to Israel over and over and over again as the Son of God. But then the heavens open and God speaks down, This is my Son. This is my Israel. This is the quintessential Jew. And this would cause confusion, at the very least. If we were Jews, this would be very, very confusing. How can God speak to this man as the Son of God? And into that confusion steps Satan. And what does he say? Did God really say? And this is the main point that I want to make this morning. In this very Jewish story, soaked in all this Jewish culture and history, the bottom line here is that Jesus is tempted in the wilderness... With this statement, did God really say? His exact words were, if you really are the son of God. But what it boils down to is it's the same question Satan has been asking since Genesis. The serpent was the shrewdest of all animals the Lord God made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say? Temptation at its core is not this inner hunger trying to make you do something you shouldn't. It's fundamentally an attack on whether or not you believe the Word of God. Did God really say? God told Adam even not to eat fruit. Satan didn't bury a hunger for fruit in Adam's belly. He showed up and said, Did God really say? And they ate. What you believe is ultimately what you do. You know that old saying, no one likes and I told you so? It's a great cliche, except it leaves out how hard it is to not say, I told you so. Like, nobody looks at it from that side. And when you're a parent, I've never been so tempted to say, I told you so, daily. Like from the time, don't stand on that, you're going to fall. Boom. Ah, I told you so. And it never stops. I'm the kind of parent, I've never been like a because I said so type parent. I've always gone to great lengths, believe it or not, I've gone to great lengths to explain exactly why they shouldn't do something. Sometimes I over explain. And usually I explain why they shouldn't do something. Everything that's going to happen if they do choose this path. On and on and on down the road. And they choose the wrong path anyway. And there I am on the other end going, no one likes me, I told you so. But, I told you so. What we believe, the, the ultimate reason we run into that is because my kids choose their own path because they don't believe me. I, don't, I think he's just old-fashioned. I think he's, I think he's, you know, they've got that voice that says, I say, hey, don't do this. It's not good for you. It's not going to work out. Good. Blah, blah, blah. Ultimately, the only reason I choose this is because they don't believe me. Until they choose it, and it turns out exactly like they said, and then they come back and go, oh, that's why I get it now. Belief drives action. And this is why one day some people came to Jesus and they asked him, How do we join in the work of God? Of all the things, how do we join in the work of God? Jesus said, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. Because the ultimate question since Adam and Eve has still been, 
Do you believe what God said? Which means the ultimate temptation is still, did God really say? So how do we respond to this? Before I continue, let me just say this is Lent. Um, so our response time is supposed to be painful. So don't get mad at me. There's an old saying that pragmatism is the enemy of virtue. Which basically just means whenever you try to stand for something, whenever you try to say this is right just because it's right, a virtue, there's always someone there going, yeah, but how would you do that in this situation? Yeah, but how would that play out? Oh, but what about those people? It's, a pragmatist is always there to pick at your virtue. Whenever you try to stand for virtue, there's always a pragmatist tearing it down. Pragmatism is the enemy of virtue. But another way you could say that old adage is, did God really say? Because we face the same temptation all the time. You ready for me to prove it to you? I'm going to read a couple of scriptures, just random. And I want you to listen to the first voice that hits your head. Your very first knee-jerk reaction. Okay? Ready? But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer him your other cheek also. Or how about this one? Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. I tell you the truth, if you had faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What do you mean, if I can, Jesus answered? Anything is possible if a person believes. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. Have I hit everybody at least once? Anybody feel that knee-jerk reaction to go, yeah, but... Anybody feel that? When you read some of those passages, you're like, well... You guys feel that? That we have that natural tendency to go, eh, but did God really say... Yeah, but you may feel that. Is it just me? That some of those passages we read, our knee-jerk reaction is to go, yeah, but I mean, there's, there's more. I mean, we can... It's an age-old temptation. It's absolutely a roadblock to fully pursuing Jesus. And here's why. And this is what's important this morning. At the root of our desire to talk ourselves out of believing is a desire to score points and measure up and deserve what we have. Let me explain that to you. So when we read that we're supposed to sell everything, give to the poor, and follow Jesus. I mean, the reality is, he's, he's telling it in a, in a standard story. He's telling it to a particular person, and we can deconstruct that way and go, yeah, he's talking to just that guy. But, a lot of the scriptures we take very, very seriously are just as random. They're just as, you know, John 3.16, that we quote all the time, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him would have... You know, not perish, but have everlasting life. That's a conversation he's having with Nicodemus. It's, it's a random verse in this weird conversation. That we, so we can go, well, that's not really meant for everyone. That's a specific to the rich young ruler. Did God really say? Or we can go, 
That's exactly what it says, and I can't do that. We have to go one or the other. We either have to deconstruct the verse so it doesn't say that to us, or we have to own that we can't live that way. Those are kind of our two options. If we don't go, did God really say? Then we have to go, I'm not there yet. And we don't like to go to that place. If we choose option one, we still get to feel good. We still get to feel worthy. I'm still a good disciple. I'm still a good follower because that verse doesn't talk to me. That's talking to some rich young ruler who had obviously had a problem with possessions. I don't have a problem with possessions, so that's not me. So I'm good. I get to walk away feeling good. I'm still a good follower. But if you choose option number two, you have to face the fact that you're not. And I think option two is better. See, the real temptation isn't that you keep and hoard and and not share with other people and that, you know, you might have the real option is that you would do that and think that you're good. The real option is that in your heart you would think you would reconstruct what it means to be a follower of Christ around this culture and this situation that you already like living. Have you ever noticed how we do that? You ever notice when we when we form what a good guy and a good follower of Jesus is, that person always kind of looks like us? <laughs> you ever notice? We we really kind of resemble that person? I've discussed turning the other cheek with a friend of mine who I completely and totally look up to, loves Jesus, loves the scripture. And his answer was, yeah, but God doesn't want us to be a doormat. I mean, David kicked some butt. I think we can too. Did God really say? It's not that any of those stances are the end of the world. It's just that we miss an opportunity for grace. Think about it. If you choose the second one, if you choose to go, I don't measure up. That's exactly what a good disciple should look like. That's exactly what somebody who is fully and completely committed to Christ should live like. And I'm not there. Then all you've got to stand on is grace. That's all you've got left. If I didn't have grace, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to stand in his kingdom. And I honestly believe that's a better place. It's better that we believe every word that God has spoken and not be able to do any of it than that we reshape it into something that it's easy for us to do that makes us feel like we're worthy. Obviously, it's best to believe every word and do it. But barring that, it's better to believe. The temptation that Jesus faced was, are you really the Son of God? God spoke, this is my son. And Satan said, eh, if you are the son, are you really the son of God? Lent's the season for repentance where we face our shortcomings and our sins and we turn from them. So this morning, as we gather around the table, I want to offer you this simple prayer. Um, it actually comes from one of the scriptures I read a minute ago. Jesus is talking to this parent. This parent was begging him for a miracle. And the parent says, have mercy on us and help us if you can. Jesus replies, what do you mean if I can? Anything is possible if a person believes. And the parent answers with this simple prayer that I think is one of the most powerful prayers we can pray. It says the father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me un." Over, help me overcome 
my unbelief. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. When we come to Jesus in simple faith and we and we're honest about our shortcomings and our failures, we're honest about the the things we know he told us to do and we just can't do them. When we're honest about that, we come and we say, I give you my belief. I I know who you are, I know what your word says, I, I know that you came to save me. Help me in the areas where I, I can't believe yet. Help me. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. We come to rely on the cross, on grace. That's the only way to find our way out of the wilderness. Help my unbelief. See, the reality is, the scary thing is, if you live like that, if you choose to, to own those scriptures that are hard, that, that you know you don't measure up to. If, if you own to reframe what you understand about holy, because this is what Jesus did. When he came on the Sermon on the Mount, they had lowered the bar to this thing they could, they could keep and feel holy. I've never killed anybody. You know, I've never committed adultery. I mean, everything's good. Jesus comes along and says, Aha, you've heard it said, don't kill. I'm saying, if you're ever angry at no reason, hello, you may have teenagers. If you're ever angry, you've already done it. I've never committed adultery. I'm still holy. Ah, you've, you've heard that. I'm saying, if you've ever lusted, you've already done it. Jesus is putting the bar up where none of us can get over it. If we ever have a discussion about sin and temptation and you walk out feeling pretty good, then I did my job wrong. Because any discussion about sin and temptation should make every single one of us, every single one of us, go, wow, I'm really glad for the cross. Because I just don't measure up without it. And unfortunately, that'll, that'll mess with you. It will, because then you'll meet somebody whose life is more messed up than you, and you'll go, well, that, that person can't be a Christian. I mean, look, look at them. I mean, they do this, this, you know, what a list. They do these things. And once you truly get in your head, what, what it would mean to actually deserve it, what it would mean to actually follow Christ the way we should, and just how blessed you are by the grace of God to be here, it gets really hard to point fingers at that other guy. It'll change the way you live. Which is why we don't like to do it. Which is why that temptation, did God really say, is so dangerous and so powerful. Because every single one of us is only here by grace. Every single one of us. None of us deserves this. And if we walk out of here feeling holy and all righteous, then we've blown it. One of the reasons we say the prayer of contrition every Sunday is because we want, to, we want to come with the posture of going, God, I blew it again this week. I have not loved you with my whole heart, and I have not loved my neighbor as myself. Oh, truly sorry and I humbly repent. That has to be our posture every time we come. Jesus faced the same thing in the wilderness, and he passed. And just so you know, when that father offered Jesus that simple prayer, I do believe, please help my unbelief. Jesus did answer his prayer. Let's go to the table.